in Leviticus chapter 16, where we read about the Day of Atonement. I'm sure that, like me, when you were growing up, you were familiar with these children's uh, pop-up storybooks. You know the kind of thing I mean, the the thick cardboard books which had uh, the characters in the story uh, pop up when you opened out the page. They were on hinges and they popped up. And so the story uh, became three-dimensional. Maybe you're still reading these kind of books. I hope you're not. (laughs) Uh, It's a very, very good way of communicating to children uh, the storyline because it creates a very solid uh, world. And we're in a solid, concrete world in the book of Leviticus. There are altars and there are bulls and there are curtains and there are special garments. And yet... Just as the the characters in the the pop-up children's storybook weren't real, but they were pointing to something that was maybe real, neither are the things that we encounter in Leviticus important in themselves, but more for what they point towards. And the temptation, of course, is always to, to look on these things which were illustrations, acted parables of a deeper reality, to look on them as though they were in themselves what's important and real. Interesting that the early church, first century, the early church was accused of atheism. And the reason for that was that uh, people either from the Jewish world who hadn't accepted Christianity or from the pagan world who worshipped other gods, they looked at the church and they saw that the church didn't have high priests with special clothes didn't have uh, altars, uh, didn't have all the, the incense and ritual that they associated with religion. And so they said, these guys are atheists. And therefore you have in the book of Hebrews the constant refrain, we have a priest, we have an altar. And there's a call to come away from the hankering after the, the visible and the concrete and to remind them that the reality is now in heaven. Jesus is our high priest. He is the lamb who takes away our sin. Well, we're looking this morning at the day of atonement, or as the Hebrews call it, the Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, famous for that day uh, in 1973 when uh, Egypt attacked Israel on Yom Kippur, knowing that the Israelites would be totally taken up in this the most sacred day of the Jewish calendar. Uh, The importance of the the ritual around sacrifice and atonement is clear from the very space that's given to it in the Old Testament. It's quite interesting, you know, if you you look at the, the way that time goes by in the Bible, it says a lot for the the way that the Holy Spirit has prioritized the different events. So uh, Around about 400 years go by in the first chapter of Exodus. But then from Exodus 12 to Leviticus 16, less than a year has elapsed. Time stands still. There is so much that is important here. And it's similar to the way in the New Testament where in the life of Jesus that the Gospels give, you have this inordinate amount of time spent on the last week of our Savior's life, the time when he's about to lay down his life on the cross of Calvary. 
And that says so much, doesn't it? It says that what happens in the atonement, prefigured, portrayed, illustrated in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament is what it's all about. God's plan is for a people who would be redeemed to himself, bought at the price of blood. It's not a plan B. It's not that Jesus died on the cross because suddenly the wheels were falling off the cart, things were going wrong, and so God just decides at the last moment to have his son sacrificed. But this is, as we read in Revelation, the lamb slain before the creation of the world. This was always in the mind of God. Now, as we're thinking about this hugely important event, uh, there are questions that come into our minds, aren't they? Uh, One basic one that we should be asking is, what is our great problem that requires such preparation and such cost? What is our great problem? And then who do we need to help us? What needs to be done? And why, fourthly, do we need to be reminded of it? What is your great problem? What is my great problem? It's how we can live with a holy God. The context for the Day of Atonement is given in the opening verses. Uh, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. Now, this is one of these really scary parts of the Old Testament. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, had gone into the the core, if you like, of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent that God had given specific instructions to be set up. And there was a a tent of meeting, but then you went into the, the inner tent, the Holy of Holies, And in that place, there was the Ark of the Covenant containing the Ten Commandments. And this was a place that only the high priest was to go into and only on the Day of Atonement. But Nadab and Abihu had simply charged in there and were told they offered strange fire, unauthorized fire. Uh, They went in not regarding the unique and holy nature of God, And he had regarded him as though he was simply another deity, another godlet in the world. And they had been struck down dead. And Israel was awestruck by this awful event. Our God is a holy God. He is altogether separated from sin. He is much bigger more awesome, more fearsome than we imagine. Those of you who are C.S. Lewis fans, bear with me for a moment as I repeat a very well-known passage. Uh, Those of you uh, who are not, uh, this will get the point across. In The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, uh, there's a well-known scene when Susan and Lucy are asking Mr. and Mrs. Beaver to tell them about Aslan, the lion who who represents uh, the Lord Jesus. They ask if Aslan is a man. And Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of beasts is? 
Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So we have a God who is good, but not safe. Why is he not safe? Well, it's because of our sin, isn't it? Our sin uh, acts as though it were petrol soaking the clothes of the sinner. And as we come into the presence of consuming fire, we are combustible material in God's presence. That's why God's not safe. It's his, our sin. It renders him awesome, fearsome. When we read in the book of Leviticus, this is driven home all the time. Uh, you're coming across regulations and stories and events. And what are they saying? They're saying, danger, keep out, do not enter, fear God. It's a great God, a holy God that we encounter in Leviticus. And if you find that hard to, to really cope with, it's because our culture, even the Church culture, in many respects, treats God as though he were some kind of benevolent grandfather. Someone who simply wants to indulge his children. The most important thing is that they have a good time. In the end of the day, it can be said, everyone was happy. Yeah? That's how so many people think of God. Our happiness is his great aim. Rubbish. There's nothing like that in the Bible. God is a holy God. And when we hear of this awe-inspiring event of Nadab and Abihu being struck dead because they came uh, in a cavalier, careless way before God, it's a reminder that were it not for the grace and mercy of God, we would be struck down ourselves. Who of us have not done so much worse than what they did? Only God's mercy means that these incidents do not happen all of the time. All of us are at root like Nadab and Abihu. We want to sing, I did it my way. And the, the essence of being in a relationship with God is that we do it God's way. We live for God. And that's our problem. Sin will separate us from God. Sin will bring us under the judgment of God. Sin is the big problem. It's not that I'm unhappy. It's not that I've got difficulty with my life, struggling in my relationships. My problem and your problem is that we have sinned, we have rebelled against God, and that rebellion means that we cannot come into the presence of a holy God. We are rendered combustible in the presence of a God who is a consuming fire. 
Who do we need, therefore? Who do we need? We need, surely, a mediator. We need someone who comes on our behalf. And that's why Israel had to appoint a high priest. He was to come from the people's side. He was to be a man of the people. And he was to be the representative. And that's the first thing that we learn about God's response to the situation. The people need a representative. In dealing with the barrier to us being home with God, this representative will represent the whole and will do what God tells them. That's simply the way God is pleased to work. God deals with representatives. When humanity was created, Adam was set apart as the representative for the whole human race. And now there is a high priest who will represent the people that they might re-enter God's home. So we need a representative and this representative must be pure and holy himself. And that's pictured by the sacred linen garments that the priest must wear. You'll see that from verse 4 down here to wear the the garments which have already been specified in Exodus for the high priest. And they represent purity and humility. But also, interestingly, on the garments, uh, there were a set of of places, there were two stones on the the shoulders, and on the breastplate there were 12 stones. And in each instance, the names of the tribes of Israel were engraved. It's a beautiful picture to think that the high priest went into the presence of a holy God with the names of the people over his heart. And when you think that this is prefiguring Jesus, isn't it such a comfort when we then translate that into gospel terms? Jesus went to the cross bearing sin with our names over his heart, representing his people bearing their sin. Jesus is the one who's portrayed in the work of the high priest. Jesus is the one who, because he is holy, and so much more so than the high priest who had to have his sins atoned for by blood, Jesus is able to go into the presence of holiness and bring us home to God. Occasionally there have been these terrible accidents in, in nuclear power stations, you know, when things are threatened to go into to meltdown. And the, the consequences of a mishap in a nuclear station are, are, are dreadful because if the thing goes out of control, then radiation can be spread over millions, perhaps, if it's new to cities. And what's needed is not... Uh, a few guys who know a bit about plumbing to go in and to try and sort things out. It needs to be someone who is taken from the, the team of specialists who knows the inner workings of the radioactive core. Someone who goes in, and yes, they're, they're dressed in one of these radioactive suits, but who goes in in the knowledge that the, the radioactivity is, has gone sky high and nothing is going to, to preserve him from the death that lies ahead, but he goes in... And he sorts it on behalf of the people. This man lays his life down. Jesus, our high priest, is God's answer to our dilemma. 
He comes from the side of the people. That was why Jesus had to be born of the Virgin Mary. He had to come from the side of humanity. But as well as knowing our, our weaknesses, as well as, as being sympathetic, he had to be more than a mere man. He had to have the, the purity, the perfection that only the high priest could model with his clothes. Uh, he comes in perfect obedience to the Father, to fulfill the Father's will in every way. Uh, lo, here I am. It is written about me in the volume of the book. I delight to do your will. He comes to lay down his life voluntarily. Nadab and Abihu, they perished because they wanted to do things their own way. Jesus comes and although he is the, the king of creation, he submits his will to the Father. Not my will, but thine be done. And goes to the cross. Goes into the, the, the radioactive chamber of the wrath of God. And bears it on our behalf. Well, that begs the question, doesn't it? What is going on in all of this? What has to be done? What is atonement? Atonement is a Hebrew, it's the translation of a Hebrew word which means to, to cover over or to pay off a debt. Now, if I cancel a debt, a debt that someone owes me. There is always a cost. You can't cancel off a debt without there being a cost. Supposing I'm owed £10,000 and I decide that I will cancel it. That £10,000 is money that really belongs in my bank account. And for me to write off that debt means that I'll no longer have the ability to support myself at that level. I will have to... to uh, to sacrifice something. I'll have to sell off a car. I'll have to cancel a holiday. I'll have to trim back the, the, the food budget. There's always a cost to the person who is owed when we cancel a debt. And in a much greater measure, sin incurs a debt to God. We owe God all our love and honor and obedience. His law proclaims what our dues are. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength and our neighbor as ourselves. And no one has ever done that fully. No one. We have this colossal debt to pay and we cannot pay it. And on the Day of Atonement, the price of our salvation, the price that is paid is portrayed through animal sacrifice. There's a couple of significant aspects too. The, the, the kind of sacrifices that had to be given. First of all, they had to be the best and the most perfect. Now when, when a sheep farmer is going to uh, decide which of his uh, ewe lambs he's going to sell and which he's going to keep for the breeding herd, he always keeps his best. Always keeps his best. And the temptation for the person uh, who is going to give a sacrifice of a lamb in the Old Testament days is to say, well, I'll keep the best for the flock. I'll give this little runt, the one with the curled horn, the one with the black patch on the side, the one that's not really grown terribly well. God says, no, that's not allowed. That's not the way. It must be the best. It must be without spot. It must be without any blemish. Because sin is a costly matter. 
That lamb, that bull, that goat is going to die. When the, the blood is manipulated on the altar and on the atonement cover, the blood will signify a life that has been given. It's representing a death and a costly death. A very costly death. But secondly, although it's costly, it's God who provides that cost. It's not a case of the, the offer working up enough sorrow or doing enough deeds. That's not what the costliness of the sacrifice represents. God provides the lamb. That was the great lesson that Abraham learned when he was about to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. At the last minute, uh, God holds back his hand and gives and points him to uh, a, a ram that was caught in the thicket. So that, we're told, it became a saying, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And there's the principle. Even although the lamb or the goat was taken from the Israelites' own flock or herd, because all we have comes from God, it was really God who was providing. God provides the lamb. Principle, we cannot make atonement for ourselves. God must enter into our world and do what we can't do. And friends, that's just what he has done in giving Jesus Christ for us. John points to Jesus and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's gift to us. God so loved the world. He gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish have everlasting life. How? Because this lamb will be slain for sin. There's a bull slain for the sin of the high priest and his family. And then two goats are taken. One of the goats is killed and its blood along with the bull, bull's blood are taken by the high priest into the most holy place. We said earlier, that's the inner tent. There's the outer tent. There's the a tent of meeting, there's the most holy place. In this little room, there is the Ark of the Covenant. It's a box, it's a wooden box overlaid with gold. On Inside the box are the Ten Commandments. The tablet, the stone tablets on which God has given his law. On either side, there are carved cherubim, spiritual beings who are turned towards what's called here the atonement cover, elsewhere called the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim have their wings pointed upwards, they're facing one another. It's a mercy seat. In this pop-up book of Leviticus, who is it that is pictured Sitting on the mercy seat. God. God is there. What does God see as he looks down? He sees his law. His holy law given to the Israelites. But a law that's a reminder that it's been broken repeatedly. 
law that calls for judgment. The priest comes in. The priest has the blood of the sacrifice. The priest applies the blood to the atonement cover, to the mercy seat. What does God see now? As God looks down, he sees that the price has been paid. A life has been forfeit. A substitution has been made. Sin is covered over. That's the meaning of atonement. Sin has been covered over. The debt has been cancelled. The offence of our rebellion has been covered over. It's been atoned. And that, friends, is why the blood of Jesus is so precious to us. That's why we can sing about that blood wiping clean the stain of our sin. Another old hymn puts it this way, What can wipe away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate not the blood of goats or bulls, but the precious blood of Jesus. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. And all the time this has been going on, the high priest has had a censer with coals in it, burning coals, and he's had to take uh, two handfuls of incense into the censer so that there's this fragrant mist when he goes into the holy place. And we're told in, in the chapter that it's so he may not look upon the glory of God and die. You may know that when, when Moses was on the mount, he wanted to see the glory of God. And he couldn't. He had to be hidden behind a rock and see just the kind of the edges of God's glory. Cast your minds back to a few weeks ago when we were looking at the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's as though that, that that cry of Moses, show me your glory, is being answered. And Jesus' glory is unveiled. And his people have a foretaste of heaven. A foretaste of what you and I are looking forward to. If we're in Christ, one day we'll see his glory. One of the goats was not slain, no. The goat had a special purpose. The priest was to, to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess all the sins of the people over it. What's going on here? Clearly it's the transfer of sin. The sin being laid on the goat. The guilt being laid on the goat. Now, it's interesting that... The NIV, from which we read, translates it as the scapegoat. And that's familiar with us. We know a scapegoat is someone who is bearing the blame. But uh, other versions have Azalel, which is a more literal rendering. It's a goat for Azalel. And it could be, it could be that that's a reference to, to the devil, to Satan. And that what is happening here is that uh, Satan is being robbed of his prize. The, the, the goat is taken by a boy out into the wilderness, out into the furthest off, most inhospitable place before being released. And 
the action of taking this goat which has had all the guilt of the people placed on it away out uh, so no one can see where the goat will never be seen again. It's speaking of what God says in Psalm 103 that he will separate us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. And if we're right in understanding Azalel as, as Satan then we see Jesus' work in these huge dimensions, huge cosmic spiritual dimensions. Satan's been robbed of his power. He no longer has the power to condemn us because Satan's power to condemn us is based on our sin. If our sin's dealt with, he has no power. He's defeated. He's impotent. He's robbed. And the, the goat is sent far away. And Azalon has no hold on us. Here is the reality, friends, of Jesus going into the far country. Here's the reality of the darkness on the cross of Calvary, of the cry of forsakenness. Jesus has gone off with our sin. He is bearing it away. He's robbing Satan. Satan has been crushed by the work of Christ on our behalf. He was made sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He bore our sin. And took it far away. It will never rise to condemn us. A wonderful picture, wonderful truth. Lastly, very briefly, why do we need to remember this? At the end of chapter 16, the Israelites are told that this is to be a memorial, it's to be an institution, it's to be held regularly. For us, the Lord's Supper is an abiding institution to remind us that God has done what the Day of Atonement in Israel was simply a picture of. We have in heaven a high priest whose work is finished, who has borne our sin away, who has made us clean. He's removed the stain the stench, the filth of our sin. And he brings us near to God. And the Lord's Supper, as it were, lifts us up to where Christ is in the heavenly realms and feeds our souls. Stories told about a blind Nepalese boy who used to love to, to go out and fly a beautiful kite. Kite beautiful colours on the frame and the canvas lovely long tail and this friend of the, the blind boy asked him once why do, you, why do you fly the kite when you can't see its beauty and the boy replied I can't see the kite but I love to feel its pool we can't see Jesus now he's in heaven we love to feel the pool, the pool of his love that we know when we gather to remember what he's done at his table. May God bless to us preaching of his holy word.
We're going, to, we're going to sing from Psalm 118 now, <coughs> a psalm that we often sing at communion time. And then uh, let me just explain uh, how we work communion here. Uh, if you're going to take part in communion, then we ask you to come as near to the front as possible. Uh, who's entitled to take communion? Well, if you love Jesus as your Savior, if you're simply trusting in him uh, to forgive you your sins... And if you're in good standing with any part of the church of Jesus Christ, you don't have to be a member of this congregation, but that your membership is one that is in good standing and that you love the Lord Jesus Christ, the invitation is to you to come. Uh, We use uh, individual cups and the the wine is non-alcoholic wine. And this is the Lord's table. It's not the table of Hope Church, Coatbridge. It's not the table of the Free Church of Scotland. It's for all who love the Lord. Certainly not for those who think that they're strong Christians. It's for those of us who realise how weak we really are and how we need to be nourished and strengthened by coming and availing ourselves of what Jesus himself has given to us to remind us of his love. So, if, you, if you're at the back of the church and you want to come forward, then do so in the singing of the psalm. Uh, if you're beside folks who are going to take communion and you don't intend, then don't feel embarrassed about that. Simply pass on the element. Uh, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. Uh, let us focus on Jesus. Let's sing the psalm now. And uh, as we sing, uh, you're invited to come to the Lord's table. Triumphant shouts of joy resound in places where the righteous dwell. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. His mighty hand does all things well. I shall not die, but I shall live. The Lord's great works I will proclaim. The Lord severely chastened me, but rescued me from death's domain.